This is episode 79 with 224 marathoner, physical therapist, and certified performance enhancement specialist, Mr. Beryl Wyatt. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast, everyone. My name is Jason Fitzgerald, and I'm going to be your host today on a very wide-ranging, deep-dive discussion with a physical therapist who's also run a 224 marathon. That runner is Mr. Veryl Wyatt, a former physical therapist to Cirque du Soleil athletes and a certified corrective exercise specialist. He's a 418 miler, so he's got some great range in addition to his competitive marathon. But what I think you're going to really love about this conversation is how a physical therapist who's also a high-performing runner thinks about the sport, about training, and more specifically, injuries and how to prevent them. So we're going to discuss everything from how his experience as a PT impacts his own running to his views on how to stay healthy as a high-mileage runner. We're also diving into exactly what his two certifications mean, both the performance enhancement specialist and the corrective exercise specialist. Finally, Veril is going to put on his physical therapist hat and think back to all the athletes and runners that he sees to talk about the common mistakes that land those athletes in his office. The goal here is to give you an inside look at how runners end up injured so you can have a little bit more foresight when it comes to your own training. Now, I do want to mention that this discussion is an excerpt from my full conversation with Veril, which is for our group coaching program, Team Strength Running. We do a new interview every month for our members, and I pull in all kinds of elite runners, PTs like Veril, other coaches, dietitians, and other runners who have a valuable perspective on the sport. You know, I like to say that knowledge is a competitive advantage when it comes to running. Know more so you can make more informed decisions about your training and reduce the number of training errors that lead to injuries and poor races. So in addition to all of our interviews, I also do a live coaching call every month where members can ask me anything. It's a fantastic opportunity to learn, to be more engaged with other runners like you, and to get direct coaching guidance very affordably. And if you haven't yet, I encourage you to sign up at strengthrunning.com TSR which stands for Team Strength Running, that'll make sure I know that you want to hear more about the team. And when the time comes to open the team to new runners, you'll be able to check out our availability and how the team works and all of our perks like training plans and gear discounts and other things. So one more time, go to strengthrunning.com TSR to see how the team can help you become a better runner. Okay, it's time for our interview with Veryl Wyatt. Please enjoy. Beryl, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. <laughs> this is awesome. Well, we have a lot to talk about. Uh, I'm really excited about this. Everything from you know your experience as a physical therapist to your own running, which is very impressive. Um, but maybe we can start with something that caught my eye as I was preparing to speak with you. Did you work with Cirque du Soleil as a therapist? Uh, so um, I actually was a yeah, as a physical therapist. Um, uh, that story is actually funny but um yes i travel i did travel therapy for a little bit and when i was out in uh time in vegas i actually had saw some of their um their uh their uh athletes or yes their athletes i think they're the, the strongest best athletes i've ever seen so i guess you can yeah they're athletes so i saw some of them in the clinic i was working in 
Um, but I wasn't on the staff for Circuit Solo A. Oh, I see. That must have been uh, an incredible yeah. experience. And, and I completely agree with you. I do think those performers are definitely athletes. The things that they can do are uh, incredibly physically impressive. Um, and, and I have a couple. Actually, my, my sister-in-law and one of my former teammates from college uh, used to be traveling physical therapists. So uh, oh, I cool. have a little bit of experience just knowing what uh, that entailed. And it must have been really interesting for you just to go around and uh, do a lot of different types of phys- physical therapy. Yeah, it was uh, it was really cool. I, I, since I'm, I'm based out of Ohio or I'm, I'm from Ohio. Um, born and raised in Akron. Um, but I actually had started um, traveling and I went out to Northwest Ohio, which I came from the city and then I went to the country and it was two different um, <laughs> ways of living. Uh, but that actually helped me become um, the physical therapist that I, that I am. Um, and these people took me in and accepted me as if I was there for years. And uh, it, it was a pretty, pretty big um big change in how I looked at things, um, especially, you know, a time that we're living in now, you kind of, you kind of nervous on certain things. And man, these people just took me in. I learned a lot about agriculture and, and farming and the respect that, you know, when you go to a grocery store and you get angry because, you know, the grapes aren't in or eggs aren't in, the, the process it takes, I just respect that so much. So when I go to the grocery stores now, uh, I have a little bit more tolerance and understanding when, you know, something may be out of stock. Yeah, that certainly also makes me a little nervous because once you start learning about our food system, you start understanding how <laughs> precarious it is. And man, if if they don't get the food out for just a couple days, there's going to be mass panic. Yes. <laughs> but yes. we, we might yes. be getting a little off topic here. Uh, let, let's take a step back because you're not just a physical therapist. You're You're a hell of a runner. How did you get into running? Oh, oh, uh, I got into running because my family uh, was a football uh, family and I come ninth grade, I just couldn't put on weight. I tried um, protein, all the things you can do legally, and I ate a ton of food and I just could not put on weight. And I just wasn't good. Uh, I think the, the, the school I went to uh, was called Copley High School. And, and uh, I think they kind of managed me on football because of my older brothers are pretty good. And then, you know, uh, freshman year um, track, actually, I didn't, I wasn't good enough to run. I was a sprinter. And at the end of the year in track, they do JV invitationals in Ohio. And you actually, the big thing is you want a letter. So you had to get 10 points to get a letter for your letterman's coat. Well, I knew I wasn't going to letter at all. So at the end of the year, it was three bar, uh, JV invitational meets. And if you won the meets, you can get like half points. So I kind of figured out what I could run. And I was like, well, I'm just going to jump in the mile and the 800 and the 100 to get the points. And by the third uh, invitational, I actually got the points. And that's when the track coach was. I, I went 208, which wasn't great. But for a sprinter, I just was trying to just do it. And that was after the mile and the 100. So I switched over um, my summer. Uh, going into my sophomore year, I decided I, I just wanted to get uh, something fresh. Um, but I actually had some kind of run-ins with the cross-country team during football, which made it a little hard for me my first year because I did all my training on my um, alone. But that that kind of made me uh, understand. And in and, and cross-country, it's, it's slightly an individual uh, and track as well with the team component of it. 
Um, so it, it, it helped me. And since sophomore year, I, um, I've been running distance in cross country. And you're a hall of fame athlete in, from your high school. Is that right? Yes, I am. Um, we, uh, I was inducted not this past, uh, winter, the, uh, prior, I was inducted into the hall of fame for track and cross country. Yes, I was, <laughs> yeah. uh, which was a huge honor. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Congrats. Um, you know what I think is funny? You couldn't run, uh, you couldn't play football because you couldn't gain any weight. So you kind of switched to the sport of running. I actually had to quit the sport of basketball because I didn't get any taller. So all of my friends, all of my basketball teammates from eighth grade to ninth grade, you know, they shot up two, three, four inches and I stayed pretty much the same height. And so I was about, I think I was like five, five or five, six at the time. And, uh, I knew that that wasn't going to be enough for, for, uh, high school level basketball. So I, I started running It's such a funny, uh, funny way that we both got into the sport through our own kind of physical limitations. Do you think that your experience in, in learning more about physical therapy and the body and anatomy and, and everything that goes into being a PT has in turn helped you become a better runner? A hundred percent, yes, and actually, uh, maybe fifty percent, no, because <laughs> um, it's it, you would think I would know everything, and sometimes I have these little injuries. Like, bro, you knew this was coming. You know what to do to actually. It's it's my love is helping other people so much that I'll actually forget about myself. Um, so yes, I know the tools. I know what I can do to prevent, <laughs> but sometimes it actually was my my worst because. I didn't do the things that I needed to do to kind of stay injury free. Or at that time, I thought it was actually, I'll take a step back. I thought at that time it was injuries and come to find out it, a lot of my injuries weren't from injuries from a, uh, um, a running perspective. It was actually a diet perspective. Looking back on it now. It's interesting. Also, you know, uh, I have the same experience as a coach in that, uh, you know, you're not always the best coach to yourself. And I'm sure you're not always the best PT to yourself. Uh, I think you lose a little bit of that objectivity. Uh, you can't necessarily look at someone's training or how they feel when it's your own. Uh, completely objectively. And that kind of lends itself to you just having a strong bias with, you know, I can push through this, I can go do that workout, let's try to hit that long run. And at the end of the day, right. if it were someone else, you know, if you were if it was an athlete, you were coaching, or if it was someone coming in, uh, nursing this little niggle or something along those lines, probably we would both say, now nah, let's take it a little bit easier this week. Let's make sure this doesn't turn into a full-blown yeah. injury, <laughs> and hopefully we'll get you back to full strength next week. Uh, <laughs> a lot of the times, yeah, right. it's impossible to have that objectivity. Right, right. No, com completely agree. Um, some, I, I've actually helped uh, others in training, and, and sometimes that is a, a barrier that, I, that I'm, I'm faced with. Um, and then I try to try to compare it to my side or my training and, and it is a little different, but yeah. it's exciting though. It's still running. You, you know, that's kind of how I look at it. Right. Right. Now you've worked in so many different, uh, settings as a PT, acute care, long-term care. You worked in, uh, skilled nursing facilities, home health needs, orthopedic care. You can see I've read your bio here. <laughs> uh, I was wondering, do you have a particular interest in one of these areas? Which ones which ones do you feel like you naturally gravitate to? Well, I gravitated to um, geriatrics, uh, which is uh, the elderly. And, you know, um, one of the acute care hospitals, actually CVAs, which 
to the public is stroke, um, cerebrovascular accident. I, I prefer to say CVA or accident because it's, it's an accident. It's not like someone has a stroke. Um, just kind of just for personal reasons. Um, some people lead with saying someone is a stroke patient, and that's not who they are. They just had an accident in their brain, and we're just trying to help it. So I, I would say that uh, is the biggest thing to me or the most to my heart, the uh, acute, only because you know, when I work in the outpatient setting or sometimes uh, even nursing home settings, it's, it's kind of similar. You know, it's all about the goals. Like, what is someone's goal? Like, for example, for us, our goal is just to run, stay fitness, stay, you know, maybe try to qualify or, or just do it because I like the relief of stress. But when you deal with someone and they say their goal is to walk their daughter down the aisle or to be able to hold their granddaughter, that takes precedence over somebody oh, I just want to, you know, get this knee pain back so I can run a marathon, which they're both important. But to have a goal to just do something so functional, that's what tied me into that acute care type nursing home. Because these people, they're just trying to get their life back. You know, I can go a week or two without running and it, it hurts, but it's like, you know, it's not, it's not, it, 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 I'll be able to go back to that. Some people don't have that opportunity to even walk. So I think for me, that's why I do more partial time in the outpatient setting, more outpatient, but I still actually work at a nursing home and some acute just because I love to see that part of it. Yeah, it seems to me like that might be more rewarding just because those people are uh, really trying to get back more basic foundational type of skills like being able to walk or you know, hold a 10, 15 pound uh, baby in their arms. And those things are, uh, at least I would say, and, and it seems like this is your opinion too, that those are more rewarding. They're more uh, emotional type of uh, scenarios that uh, I, I commend you for that. I mean, I think that's awesome. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, and like I said, we all have our, you know, our issues. And um, uh, I, I think it's, some people's goals are different than others in life, and that that's completely fine. Um, but yeah, it's just certain things that kind of just stick with you. Um, and then you know what? Sometimes it's like you know when I get down on myself about being injured, I kind of look at you know what, bro? If I do the right things, I can help someone get back. And it's just like ah, it's someone else out there that's actually going through a little bit more than me. So just understand this is a little setback. And at that point, I just you know, I indulge in reading and I, and I indulge in some type of therapy, uh, to get through it. And then I'm back to where I'm, where I'm at in my running. Yeah. You have this perspective, I think, which is really nice. You know, you see, you see people all across this big wide spectrum of function. And, you know, when you have a running injury, it kind of gives you that perspective perspective to say, this isn't completely debilitating. I'm going to be back. This does not so negatively impact my health in a given way that, you know, I'm going to have long-term consequences. And so I, I think that perspective is really helpful. Um, now, Vero, you have two certifications that I'd love to learn more about, uh, PES and CES. And let's start with the PES. That's a performance enhancement specialist. Can you explain that one to me? Yeah, so um, that actually uh, is done through NASM. Um, and one thing about physical therapy, uh, when we're taught out of school or when we're, we come out of school, our job is to do the therapy aspect of it, you know, get people back to baseline. And then after that, a lot of therapists, you know, you say, well, what do I do now? I, I don't know. How do I get my strength back? How do I run longer? 
well, I don't know. My job is just to fix you. So it's been like this, this move towards like rehab and performance together. So with the performance enhancement specialist, would that degree have helped me or that uh, for the certification that helped, it actually helped me bridge. So I have my physical therapy hat on. And as these people are starting to get towards that discharge point, it's like, okay, let me turn on the performance enhancement. So you're a baseball player. Okay, now we're going to start doing things that's geared towards baseball. Oh, you're a runner. Now we're going to do things that's geared towards running. And that can be, you know, looking at someone's gait assessment, gait analysis. Um, so I, the performance enhancement basically allows me to take their sport or what they want to return to and look at the muscle group that's more important for that function. So like when you first come to physical therapy, you know, you may have a knee issue. Okay, yeah, you'll do your squats, you'll do your hip hinges, you'll do your basic. But once you get back to that point, this person, a football player and a cross country runner and basketball per se, they're, they're different. So you can't train them the same way. You can get them, you can rehab them that way, but the performance part of it has to be specific. That's, you know, the laws of specificity. It has to be specific to that, that, that sport. And that's what the performance enhancement um, specialist or uh, certification has helped me do. Take a sport that I'm not, you know, I'm a, I'm a buck 35 or 40. Uh, and then you got these big wrestlers or football players coming in. You got to know how to show them and convince them that you know what you're doing. Um, and that's where it, it has helped me with that. That is so interesting, and, and I love that you're mentioning specificity. Now you're starting to talk my exercise science language here as a coach. I love it. Uh, listeners here will definitely know that I talk about this so often as such a crucial way of modeling your training so that you can actually accomplish the goals that you want to accomplish. And clearly, uh, when it comes to different types of athletes, whether you are a, a baseball player or a cross-country runner or a wrestler, there's different... Um, needs for those types of runners. Now, I'm just wondering, when you go and get that uh, PES, do you yeah. fo do you learn more about different types of sports? Uh, is it more categories of sports? Like, how is that structured? Oh, it's structured where it gives you basically um, they 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 base it off of like this uh, pyramid. Um, and it actually isn't just towards like one sport. And at the end of the book, Jason, it actually goes to every sport. So it tells you how to train a football player, uh, a basketball player. Uh, I think they even go into hockey, soccer, and that's how it actually, um, it separates itself. But at the beginning, they want to teach you like the basics, the, the strengthening, the breathing, the balance. So once you get that base of the pyramid, and then as you go higher up the pyramid, that's when you start to differentiate between the two, the, the sports. This pyramid uh, is, is a graphic that I'm going to have to find somewhere because it sounds, I, I love good visuals and this sounds like something that would really lay it out very clearly so that we can kind of see almost a hierarchy of uh, general to specific, which is another great exercise science um, paradigm or principle that I love to use uh, with my runners too. Um, now, let, what about CES, the Corrective Exercise Specialist? Can you talk more about that one, too? Absolutely. So what that one is, it's, it's another component, and they actually separated it from the sports enhancement. So I, how I kind of look at the corrective exercise uh, component of it is it's, it's a great prehab, preseason thing, and you can actually kind of incorporate into the season. So what I'll do, um, it's, it's functional assessment. So a squat, single leg squat, 
Um, you can, you know, you can do some jumping, you can do some um, uh, testing for the shoulders as well in the push-up position. Um, so you can measure. And what you're looking at, for example, let's just take the single leg squat for a runner. Um, for the corrective exercise specialist uh, certificate, you, you take a squat and you video, I videotape it um, from the front. I have them do five uh, with their hands over their head. So I like the whole body approach. Um, so they're just standing on one leg, arms over their head as high as they can. Um, and they're just going to perform a squat. I don't tell them what to do. I don't tell them how to perform it. I just like to see what they do. Um, five from the front, uh, frontal, uh, from the front view, side view, and even posterior. So from there, I'm looking at a little checklist that they have come up with. Well, okay, the foot turns out. Oh, no, the foot turns in. Oh, wow, look at the excessive internal rotation that's going on at the hip. And you get these and you start to make notes. And then your job is, okay, you're going into the, uh, you're in off season. Okay, you have this assessment done. This, this, and this is wrong. This is going to set you up for these injuries. This is going to set you up for the plantar fasciitis. This is set you up for the, 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 you know, the term shin splint. And from there, it's like, oh, okay, fine. So what do I have to do? And then from that exercise, little uh, functional assessment, you give them exercises to address the hip, to address the knee, to address the lower legs. So when they're going into their off or their preseason or more even into that kind of season when they're starting to race, they have used these corrective exercises that's specific to the muscle group that's actually um, causing the problem. And then at the end of the corrective exercise, the goal is you can't strengthen one muscle, especially for runners. If you have weak hip abductors, AB abductors, you can't just have them do a, a multiple sets of AB abductors without incorporating it back into the chain, the system. It, it works as one. So you will start there and be specific, and then you'll bring it back into a functional type of exercise to push them forward to uh, decrease it risk for injury. This is really interesting to me because injury prevention is one of the topics within running that I get really fired up about because I think if runners can simply prevent more injuries, they're going to be able to train more. They're going to have higher levels of confidence in their own abilities, and ultimately, they're going to be much better runners. And so hearing your answer to that really just makes me think, you know, you've seen all these runners. You just mentioned, okay, if you're a runner, let's have you do a single leg squat, and I'm going to look uh, for a checklist of uh, maybe mistakes or or things that you a runner should be able to do w within this exercise. So now I'm curious, you know, with all these runners that you've seen, what are some of the uh, most common deficiencies that are uh, really prevalent among the runner crowd? And maybe uh, once we know what those are, how can we how can we address those in our training? So hopefully we we don't have to go see you every week. Uh, yeah, that, that's my goal to keep people out, um, uh, out of their place. But <laughs> your goal actually, is to put yourself out of business. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny, right? Because it's like, yeah, you want to see these people, but at the same time, Jason, some of these, these injuries, it's like, come on, if you just do the right things, you can stay out of a physical therapy office. I love to see, I would prefer, uh, uh I'll prefer to come see you on the, on the field than for you to come see me. I, it, that's kind of how I look at it because you'll need me or someone else may need me. But I don't want to keep you into my office. <laughs> that means I may have to work later. Um, but yeah, so what I would actually say is if, if looking at a runner, if we take a runner for, for example, the biggest issue, if, if it was one muscle group that I would actually say that, that it's just a struggle is hip abduction. And that is more of the, um, your glute meat. Um, you can even say the glute, glute complex. But glute meat is going to be that muscle that sits on the side of the hip for uh, some of the, the people 
that um, will, will question, well, it's glute medius. Uh, gluteus medius is the, is, the, is, the, is the full name of the muscle. And it sits on the side. And, and that muscle has multiple components because it controls you on single leg stance. A lot of injuries come from that when you're on single leg because running is single leg. Um, it's a, it, it has single leg support. Walking, actually, it's never a point in walking where both legs or one leg is off the ground. They're on the ground. Well, running, it's single leg. So if you're doing squats, if you're doing lunges, which is great, that doesn't translate over. You have to do something that's going to be single leg to actually make it more functional. So just putting someone up, literally, if you're seeing what some of your, your people you coach, um, just have them stand on one leg for 30 seconds. You will be surprised how many people can't stand on one leg for 30 seconds with stability. Not that they can do it. They'll shake, they'll wobble, and that's okay unless it's just this big, big movement. You want small movements. You want them to see that their body is working. And one thing is that's a hip issue. And then what they'll do, they'll, they'll, the other side of their hip will actually drop. That's like a, it's called a contralateral drop. The hip weakness causes your IT issues, your, your, your patellofemoral issues. If you want to say patella tendonitis versus patella syndrome, um, anterior knee pain, we'll keep it basic. Um, your, your, your shin splints, your posterior tibialis syndrome, your, your, your uh, heel pain, your plantar fasciitis. So if I'm looking as a physical therapist and even as a coach, it's like, okay, what muscle can actually help correct a lot of these, these things and get better bang for buck? I would say it's going to be your side muscle, your, your glute meat. I'm constantly telling runners to focus on the hips and the glutes because those are yeah. what I think are the two most important muscles for not only injury prevention, just exactly what you were saying. You know, these are the muscles that really provide the stability uh, for a uh, an efficient stride, and they're going to make sure that your your leg is kind of moving appropriately, but also for performance. You know, if you want to be a fast runner, then you need to generate a lot of power, and that really begins in that in that glute hip area. Uh, so I'm glad to hear you talk more about that. And uh, what, what are some ways that we can address the the glute need and really the entire glute complex without you know kind of you know focusing on you know squats every single day? Yeah, yeah, and, and this is where it comes back to my time with some of the the, the Cirque du Soleil, um, some of the performers. Uh, it, it, it's 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 kind of simple. Some of the things you do, um, but adding resistance bands and not a lot, Jason, just a little loop, you know, just a light resistance to help the. So now we're looking at the neural control. We need to know the brain needs to know how to make these 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 motions more efficient. Um, so. What I'll usually do to really address that is I use bands for a lot of my exercises. So I will start someone off with a, a bridge, um, double leg, um, and then I'll progress them to single leg. And while doing these bridges, um, I'm, I'm putting a band around their, 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 their just above their knees and lightly pressing out. So you're turning that lateral chain. So you're getting the lateral side, which is your glute med and glute minimus. You're getting that while you're activating and gets the band. And then when you're pushing up to a glute, that's getting the glute max. That's the whole glute complex right there. Just off that little, just adding bands um, and actually having people press. So if you want to do a standing squat, which is it's great. You, you, we need to do it as runners. Um, add a band just above the knee. Lightly press out into that band and perform the squat. That's going to help turn that knee dominant exercise into a knee dominant plus a hip actually component of it. Um, squats and hamstring or uh, squats and lunges and step ups are going to be considered knee dominant patterns. So you'll get a lot of runners that, that are uh, hip 
yeah, knee dominant, where they have these strong quads, but their glutes just don't work. So that's why um, bridges, uh, hip hinges. I love the you know the the, the deadlifts because you're using your hinge. That is the most powerful muscle. One of the most powerful muscles in our body is our glute max. And us runners sometimes just don't even use it because we do so many dominant patterns and strengthening that focuses on the knee. So hinging, and that means you know, obviously you're, you're, you're kind of using your pelvis as, a, as like a, a reference point, and it's going over your stationary lower legs. Um, deadlift is actually obviously the, the best way people look at it, even sometimes a good morning. Um, but that bridge, single leg bridge and some of those hinging, that's what you'll work on. You can add a band to that to really get the whole glute complex involved. Yeah, that's great. It sounds like the band really acts almost as if it's like a cue, just as a reminder that you should be exerting a little bit of pressure, um, moving your knees outward and kind of rotating your femur in that uh, that outward direction. Because if if you don't and that cube isn't there, there there is that tendency for your knees to collapse inward, and then you're not getting you know that that stimulus in the glute med. Am, am I am I on the right track there? Yeah, and I'm just going to take it first, right? Continue what you said. So let's go back up to the hips. So if you don't have the outside kind of that pressure, your hip will internally rotate in, or, or some people will say it, it will go in because your knees will go in. That's uncontrolled. So what happens when you're in that stance phase, people's hip will drop or their leg will go in. And then if you take that down into the ankle, what happens there? Your increased pronation. So you have this poor control that is not, you may have, plantar fasciitis but it came from that weak hip so that's why it's like when you treat someone with a lower foot injury i'll automatically look up the chain because something is telling the pitcher at another joint and if you only focused on that issue in the foot or the knee and miss the hip they're going to always have these issues so fix it at the beginning that's kind of how to look at it and yeah you were completely right and you just take it all the way down the chain because what happens at the hip happens at the knee and happens at the uh, foot, vice versa going back up. It, it can go both ways. This reminds me of why I don't really like to give running shoe advice. So I'm constantly being asked by runners, you know, I overpronate. Should I get these motion control shoes? And my first response is always, well, you know, what is overpronation? You know, pronation is a normal thing. It is there to absorb shock. Everyone, well, most people pronate to a certain certain degree. And, you know, we shouldn't try to correct it because it is this normal movement of our body uh, that is is there to help protect ourselves. And and also, you know, maybe you are pronating too much, but it is at the very end of the movement stream, you know, and it could be potentially uh, caused by some issue or weakness or imbalance further up the chain. And just like you were talking about, you know, I'd rather treat the runner a little bit more holistically. You know, let's let's look at your short shortcomings, any weaknesses that you might have, and let's treat those. And then the smaller downstream issues largely tend to take care of themselves as long as they're not too severe. You you hit it on the you hit it there, and that and that's the that's the issue that. Sometimes we'll battle with runners. Um, it's like, well, I want to get this shoe. I want to get that shoe. I want to get this. And it's like, well, or, or you know, something we'll get. Oh, go, go see a, um, go get a specially made $400 orthotic. And it's like, you're just masking the symptoms or the, you're, you're fixing the symptoms and not the problem. The, the, the pain is the symptom. So if you're having pain in the lower legs, yes, the shoe may feel a little better, but you never fix the 
problem, the, the cause, not the symptom, the treating the symptom. So what I usually do, the rule of thumb, Jason, is what we kind of do at the clinic is if you have knee and under pain, um, the lower leg issues, you probably don't want to get a four millimeter or lower drop shoe. You're going to need to heal a little bit. Um, and, and if you have a hip issue, you usually probably want to go a little lower in the drop, maybe an eight, four or zero is, is pushing it. I usually stay around that eight to four or four to eight range. Some, some shoes are six. And then at the knee, it goes both ways. So you choose as a, as a runner, which one you prefer. So that's kind of how we stay out of that safe zone because so many people think that, oh, I need, I need support because I'm pronating in. No, you're supposed to pronate. That's the body. The brain wants to get to that big toe to push off. And if you stop it with so much control, what happens? You get those lateral stress reactions, sometimes fractures, and even lateral leg pain, IT band, because you're not allowing your body to pronate, which it is normally supposed to do, just like you said. Right. That pronation is just so normal and expected and welcomed that I think a lot of runners have uh, made pronation into a villain. And uh, I don't think it needs to be. And it certainly is something that I mean, look, you, like you said, if you don't pronate, you're probably going to get injured and you're certainly not going to have this really important uh, or this really powerful stride because you're not getting that push off from the big toe. Um, and, and I really like that classification that you had for, you know, where your injury is and what heel toe drop might be appropriate for you. I think that's a really good, um, you know, uh, starting point for runners who who might have these these I injury issues and they're not sure what shoes to wear. You know, I think at the end of the day, if the shoe feels comfortable, if you're running in it and you enjoy it, it feels good on your feet, then that's probably a good shoe for you. But going a little bit more granular, it might be nice to, to drill down and to look at the heel toe drop based on the injury that you have. Uh, and then, you know, I, I'm always talking to runners and, you know, it, it's interesting when a runner will blame an injury on a pair of shoes. You know, oh, I got a new pair of shoes. I, I ran a couple miles in them the other day and now my, you know, my knee hurts. It's definitely the shoe. And my response is always, if the shoe is making your knee hurt or hip hurt or whatever it might be after, you know, just a, a couple runs or, you know, one workout, then my inclination as a coach is to say the shoe isn't the problem. There's a strength issue at play here, because I think if you're getting hurt on a couple runs in a new pair of shoes, then it's not the shoes. Then there's some deficiency that's not allowing you to, you know, overcome a little bit of stress. Correct. Correct. And, and, and <laughs> that's the funny thing. It's like, uh, we, we will blame it on anything and this whole, well, you need to shoot it. It needs to break in a couple of weeks. No, these, these companies are fantastic. Now, if you stay with the right brand or your brand that fits you, you can buy a shoe a day or two before your race and be okay. So I, I, in the past, yes, but no, I, it's, it's not a shoe thing. And that's, that's the biggest thing. And a lot of studies are starting to be, uh, or not starting, but has been shown, um, it, we get so uh, we want to blame things and not want to blame ourselves for what the problem actually is. And most of the time, Jason, it is a strength issue or it's a motor control issue. It's not the shoes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's runners. That's that's kind of like 
who we are, you know, something goes wrong in our training, we get injured, a race doesn't go well, we're always looking for the reason why. And that's, uh, that's the reason for that. But you know, at the end of the day, it's training errors, we're doing too much too soon too fast. And that's responsible for 95% of the injuries out there. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of the responsibility for doing too much too soon too fast and making those training errors is just ourselves, we're just making mistakes. And that's always a hard thing for uh, most type A runners to admit is that they made a mistake. Um, but you know, let, let's transition a little bit to your own running. You know, I think we, we talked about it a little bit, uh, briefly at the very beginning. Um, you know, you've, you've had quite the post collegiate career. Uh, I know you ran, I think 224 last year, uh, at the Akron marathon, if I'm not mistaken. Um, maybe talk a little bit about some of the races that you've run since graduating college and, um, the ones that are most important to you. Cause I know you've done everything from ultra marathons on down. Yes. Um, so the most important is the, is the Akron marathon. Um, the one I just had recently ran, um, it's a very hilly, uh, route. Um, and it's my hometown city. So I lost to a guy actually that came from North Carolina um, he was a two eighteen uh, marathoner. So we talked a little bit afterwards and, um, he, he ended up beating me by a little bit over a minute. Um, but I actually, he had me by almost four minutes, uh, with, with, uh, at mile 17 and I made up three minutes. And then like I always do anything over 21 miles in a race, I cramp. And then at that point, it's just trying to get to the finish line from a, mar- a marathon all the way up to my 50 K's. So uh, a couple years back, I was second overall in um, the 50K USA Championships, um, and I was 257 or so. Um, but once again, uh, I cramped at 20, around 22 that day. Um, so I've ran uh, multiple tra- uh, trail 50Ks as well. I actually went up to Canada. They have a really, really cool 50K. It's called Run for the Toad. Um, and it's, I think it's in Paris, Canada. I think that's the place that hold it at a, a park. Um, and it's a trail, uh, uh, trail 50 K and I've won it two times. And actually I broke the record the one time, uh, the first time I ran it. And, um, I remember crossing the line cause I, I think I broke the record that day by six minutes. And the guy I wrote, uh, came up with, his name is Mark Godell. He was a really, he, he actually had the merit or the hundred mile record or 24 hour record for a little while. Um, from the Ohio area. Uh, he was really, really big in ultra. Um, and he ha- he said, that was the dumbest thing I've ever seen someone do. And, and he said, why would you break a record by six minutes? You should have broke it by six seconds and then came back each year. And, and you know, and kind of basically, <laughs> he basically <laughs> I said, like I went that. too fast. <laughs> um, he was like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta learn how to run for uh, these races. But yeah, I've ran uh, a couple 50 or multiple, probably more 50 Ks and I've done um, marathons. But this last, couple months uh, my my shift has been towards uh redoing the acro marathon and actually uh attempting to qualify for the olympic trials uh here in december out in california um at cim uh it's a pretty fast marathon that would be my first marathon where i actually run where it's a group of people trying to do the same thing some of the marathons i've uh, ran in the past was just more of myself getting out there and just doing it and running so i've ran a couple solo 224 and that's kind of where i've been stuck at um but training wise has been fantastic but i break down towards the end of the 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 the, uh, season and that's when a lot of the cramping comes in a longer racing event so this year now um i I 
think we figured it out and um, I'm pushing forward to, for these last two. And then after this year, I'll go up and, and push up towards the 50 mile, 100 mile race uh, distance. That's really exciting. And I, I love talking to what I'll label you as as, as a sub elite runner. And, you know, you're someone who uh, I don't think Nike is knocking down your door to give you a shoe sponsorship or anything like that. But at the end of the day, I mean, you've run 224 in the marathon, uh, incredibly competitive. And, and I love talking to folks who are kind of in that awkward in-between zone of being uh, enormously talented and competitive, however, not good enough to actually do it uh, full-time as a career. Um, now, g- give us a bird's-eye view of your training before you ran uh, your 224 last year. I mean, what did your schedule look like? Because you're also working full-time, and I think it's it's really helpful for, for folks to see uh, extremely competitive runners like you who work full-time and how you manage all that. Yeah, it's it's tough. Um, um, it, it it can get tough. It, it I go to bed earlier, um, and I wake up earlier. <laughs> Basically, uh, this time around, last year I was more. I wasn't so flexible with sleeping. I didn't really think that sleep made a big difference um, uh, for training, and it actually does. But I've worked uh, five to six days a week because, um, like I told you earlier, Jason, I still have the full time job, and then on the side I'll do my nursing home and um, uh, an acute care job as well. So some weeks I'll actually go seven days a week. Uh, I do two days of hard running, um, and that's based on a Thursday and a Sunday. It's usually, I'm pretty flexible, but that's what I kind of usually keep it at. Uh, and honestly, when people ask me, who do I coach? I, I don't coach. I coach myself or I read. I, I do a lot of research. Uh, that's, that's what I do for uh, physical therapy. And the book that I actually, I think, helped me the most has been Jack Daniels running formula. Um, some people ear away from or steer away from because the workouts are so long, but in my eyes, that's what works for me because it's two days a week, uh, of two long marathon pace workouts. Sometimes they'll do a little interval pacing on the track, which I do really bad at actually until this year, but, uh, last year, uh, a lot of long workouts. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or, you know, anywhere from and I've, I've averaged maybe, I average maybe 55 miles a week, <laughs> uh, which is another thing that uh, people are like, I cannot believe you can do that after those mileage. I couldn't put the mileage in because of work, um, it, partial being work, partial being lazy. Uh, but I re- average around 50 to 60 miles a week. So for me, it's like, okay, if I can get out there on a high week of 70 at the highest, if two of my workouts are 20 and 15 miles, that leaves me time to be, you know, five mile to eight mile days on the other days. So I use those days as more easier runs. I go out with, you know, community running groups and my, my heart workouts are hard workouts. It's, 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 you know, eight miles at marathon pace and one mile at tempo pace and six miles at marathon pace and one mile at tempo pace. Then you have your cool down and variations of that with, you know, higher tempo. So I'm heavy tempo, heavy marathon. And the other days I'm just more easy. But this time around, you know, I, I, I think a lot of people think the 100-mile mark is the best thing to do. And I, with working, I got to be realistic about it. So this year, I'll probably do around 75 to 85 or so, maybe clip in around 90. But that goal, and nothing will change. I'll just add more easy time because I think you need more time on your feet at times and just more slow running to kind of double run. Yeah. Do you run ever twice a day? Is that part of your training schedule? 
this year has been. Um, uh, I got up so far, the most I've gotten up to over the last couple uh, weeks has been 90. Um, and that consisted of some double running because not that I can't, I, I love to just go run. I get up at five in the morning, so I don't usually start work from until eight. So I can run it all in double or singles, but double running actually helps more of like a, uh, a exercise or more of the burning of calories you say, or I think splitting some runs kind of is, is beneficial. I think it's very, very beneficial to split runs and double run. Um, it gives your body time to rest. And it gives you that time to, you know, run, go to work. Uh, you have a draggy day at work or you maybe ate a little bit too much. Then you have your nighttime run, kind of cool you down, easy run, you know, shower, whatever you have to do and get ready for bed. It actually helps me sleep a little bit better, too, to kind of do some light exercises at night. So I'll double run maybe once or twice a week uh, as of now. I always found that once you start getting over 70, 75 miles a week, then you really do need to start adding in a double at least once a week because it's just becomes really hard to average, you know, 11, 12 miles a day um, if you still want to have an easy day. So for me, um, I think I only ever got up to 90, 91 miles per week. My body just really started breaking down uh, at that kind of mileage levels. But 80 and 85 was very doable for me. But that would pretty much mean I would have to do um two double runs of about five miles and so you know that kind of puts me back you know in terms of singles with being around 70 75 per week in the singles and then the two five mile doubles brought it up to a nice 80 85 mile uh per week but yeah it just gets really hard once you get up in the those mileage ranges because you know when you're running about 90 miles a week that's like a half marathon every day and that gets a little challenging and a little stressful now, Vero, when you're running, say, these five to eight mile easy runs, you know, the, the runs that are not your hard days, what is your easy pace when you're just recovering like that? Uh, you know, sometimes I'll go without a watch and sometimes I'll, I'll just kind of try not to look at the watch. But for the first mile or two, I let my body just tell me how to run because, you know, I'm, I'm it's 530 in the morning. So honestly, Jason, if I look down at my first mile, some of them are 750, 755, eight minutes. Now, by the time I finish the run, yeah, I'm averaging, not, not, not at that current pace. I'm averaging for the whole run, maybe seven flat to 720. Um, but I, I let my body for the first mile or two just kind of control. What do you want to do today? Some days I go out and it's like, wow, that was a 650. Then other days, well, that was a 750. I kind of just go off of how I feel and then I warm up. Um, usually we call it sometimes the, the Kenyan trot. Cause if you ever see some of the Kenyans kind of warm up, they trot, they're not looking at their GPS as saying six flat, six flat. They just kind of let their body kind of get, get into a rhythm. And that's kind of how I, I train and I'll look at it, but I average, you know, on those easy days, I try to make them easy cause I want my hard days hard, uh, in between six, 30-ish to around 730 is the average for the total run. I think it's incredibly instructive that you model your kind of easy running after how the Kenyans do it. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, they'll start some of their runs slower than nine minutes per mile. And these are guys who can run a marathon averaging under five minutes per mile. And uh, it, it's very encouraging to see 
someone else doing it like that because I, I think it is the best way to do it. Number one, you're listening to your body. Number two, you're really letting it warm up. Um, and without that warm up process, you know, you're going to be more likely to get injured. And I think it's it's an easier way to train. It requires less stress and pressure on yourself to perform when in reality, you don't have to perform on an easy day. It's the, the goal is it for to be an easy run. Uh, and, and I think that is uh, so much more of an effective way of thinking about and executing those easy runs because that is one of the biggest mistakes that I see runners make is that, you know, their easy runs are not that much slower than, you know, some of their their marathon pace workouts and things like that. And and there's a, a lot to be desired when you structure your training that way because it's you can make things more efficient, you can get more out of your hard days, you can recover better on your easy days and ultimately race a lot faster. Yeah, and, and to go to that point, and I love Jason because I don't know if uh, people will catch it, but you literally, you skipped to my post-college. You, you said post-collegiate. You didn't ask me anything about my college career. And it's a reason why, because I wasn't that good. I went from being pretty good in high school, and then I went to college. I was instructed from high school, I went 35 to 40 miles a week, up to 90 to 100 and every easy day had to be sub seven. So I'm running higher miles, almost tripling my miles out of high school. And now I'm running faster every day. I never recover. And every year I was hurt. And, and, and it's fantastic. You make that point. And it's like after I got out of school, I said, look, this is not the way to train. I was like, I, this could not be the way to train because I was going to just walk away from running. And then I was like, you know what? I start getting in with the, the archer runners. Those people, they're out there just for hours taking pictures and different things, which is, you know, it's funny. But it's the thing, the thing I've learned from them is, bro, just, just run, just easy run. Quit looking at your Garmin. And once I separated that, that's when I became more efficient. But in college, I was ran, I was ran straight into the ground. And that's why I didn't do well in college. Well, it sounds like we had very similar college careers. And <laughs> I think I think that... It's very common for college runners to get on a team and, you know, the difference between a 22-year-old college senior who's very accomplished and a 17 or 18-year-old a college freshman who's just kind of, you know, they might have been a medium fish in a small pond. And now they're getting up to the college level and they want to keep up on those easy runs. And it might be easy for, you know, a a, a 30 minute or 32 minute 10K runner to run seven minute mile pace on their easy days, but not always for that college freshman. And I think there's a really hard transition point for uh, collegiate runners when they first get to that level is just you got to take your easy days easy. And and I made that mistake too. You know, you tried to keep up with, you know, the varsity squad, the guys who, um, you know, are, are running at the head of the pack. And it's, it's a hard, hard uh, situation to be in because you're absolutely right. Not only are, do you have that pressure to hang with those guys at the front, but you're also doing harder workouts. You're probably running a lot higher volume, and it's this perfect storm of issues that lead themselves to injuries and really terrible races. We could probably have an entire uh, conversation about our horrible collegiate races that uh, it would just be so humorous and um, you know probably embarrassing for the two of us. But maybe that's a, another conversation for another day. Um, but Vera, when's your next race? What are you gearing up for right now? So uh, I'll be training for the Akron Marathon. That is actually September 30th. 
And um, after that, I'll uh, kind of switch gears. Well, not switch gears, I'll continue. But the big race for me uh, will be December 2nd in CIM out in California for the uh, 10th at the trials uh, qualifier. Now, the qualifying time that you need is 2.19. Am I right or wrong? It, it is 2.19, yes. Oh, 2.19. Okay, so you've got about, yep, you need about a five-minute personal best. But it sounds like, you know, the, the 2.24 you ran was on a hilly course, and wasn't it really hot when you ran that? Yeah, it went it went to 80 degrees that day in humidity. Um, so, yeah, the, one of our guys there, uh, even the, the guy that won, it was like, yeah, that's, that's a hard effort. Uh, I'm not into saying, you know, one guy told me, oh, well, that's a 2.20 effort. Uh, maybe, but I didn't run 2.20. You know, I want to run 220. I don't want to look at my workouts because my workouts say, yes, I'm there. But I didn't do it yet. So that's my biggest issue in the drive now is, okay, no, well, let's do it. Let's, people say I can do it for my workouts, but let's actually put it into play. Yeah, there's a big difference between what you think you can do and what you've actually done. And and that's probably uh, something that every runner who has ever finished a race has thought about. Um, and maybe that's why running is so attractive and seductive to folks. It's because every time you finish a race, you think, I can do a little bit better. Right. And, and that's and that's when you should you should feel that should be motivating to know that you can. Um uh, I, I think you quoted, I, I think it was you that actually said it, or, or I was listening to one of your podcasts. I, I think it was you, Jason, that said it, but you said, um, sometimes uh, you said going out over your head and letting Jesus take the wheel. Uh, I think that was so fantastic. When you said that in a podcast, I was like, I have to write that down because I can use that in every aspect of my life. And it's just like, you know what? I think I can do it. I'm just going to go out there. And you can never fault yourself by saying, at least you tried versus, oh, I should have did this or I could have done it. Just go out and do it. Try it. <laughs> yeah, that, that is one of my favorite racing strategies. Uh, it is it is one to be used with uh, a good amount of caution because you certainly that doesn't mean, you know, let's start your uh, first 10 miles, of your marathon right at 50 minutes because you might, you know, blow right. up uh, at, <laughs> right. at Akron for So I would do that. But yeah, it's one of those things where, look, if you don't ever put yourself in the position to have a breakthrough, then you're probably never going to have a breakthrough. And putting yourself in that position is really uncomfortable. Uh, it, it, it's easier to do what you've always done. It's easier not to take a risk. But when you can take that risk, it's not always going to work out, but it will sometimes. And that makes it so much worth it. Absolutely. Giving yourself a chance. That you just you got to do it. You, you got to try it. And, and if it's done correctly, it's like, yeah, you left it all out there and, 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 and you can be proud that you did it. So. There we go. Uh, I think that, that, that's that's fantastic. Um, that's a fantastic way to look at it. And uh, heel sprints is has helped me a ton as well. Um, for that whole for the people that don't like to run hard or easy every day, you know, add some heel sprints at the end of your easy days so it can kind of get you that little revving that you want to do in your engine. But it's very very efficient to kind of do that versus running hard every day. That's kind of how I get over when I want to feel really good on a run. I'll keep the run easy and I'll do maybe six to eight kind of heel uh, strides. And that that gives me a little fix for my run for that day. So yeah, it puts a little pop in your legs and it makes you feel like you did something incredibly productive. I love it. Well, Varel, I love your progression. Yeah. (laughs) 
this has been uh, a really interesting conversation. I, I, I love learning more about the physical therapy world and uh, folks like you who are chasing great, huge, big goals like uh, uh, an Olympic qualifying time. So uh, best of luck with the Akron Marathon next month and best of luck with your um, with your OQ, I guess I'll call it. I'm usually, usually saying BQ, but your OQ time yeah. <laughs> later this year. That's really exciting and best of luck. Yes, thank you so much for having me. All right, there we go, everyone. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Verrill. He's such a nice guy, and I really appreciated all of the insights that he was able to share today. Now, like I mentioned before, this interview today is but an excerpt from our full conversation, which is for team strength running. If you're interested in figuring out what the team is all about, how it works, and how we can help you become a better runner, go to strengthrunning.com slash TSR. Just sign up your name and your email right in that field. And when the time comes and the team is being opened for new members, I'll let you know all about what we're about. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk soon.